Here's how it happens. You're busy doing things uh, that you planned for a while. Maybe you're, you're planning a major event, or you're having a, a dinner with a special person, or you're looking forward to uh, uh, time off or whatever, and then all of a sudden the phone rings. And you answer the phone, and it's somebody that maybe you haven't heard from in a while, but you know who they are, or maybe it's a total stranger. And they tell you, somebody just died. A family member just died. A close friend just died. And your whole life for a significant period of time changes at that moment, doesn't it? You've all had that experience. Why have we all had that experience? Because death is common to every single living thing. Let me say that again. Death is common to every single living thing. We all die. You're going to die, every one of you, unless the Lord returns before then. I'm going to die. Your pets are going to die. The trees are going to die. Every living thing dies. Now, isn't that a, a wonderful way to start a sermon? <laughs> so before we all collapse into a pool of despair... Uh, I'd like us to stand for a second, stand up, and read together, we're going to read in unison, 1 Corinthians 15, just two verses, verses 54 and 55, I think they, I'm, there they are, so we're going to read in unison, you're going to read along with me out loud, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 and 55, you ready? When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? You may be seated. Now doesn't that give us hope? That's where we're going to end up this morning. That's the conclusion of my sermon, but I wanted to start with that, my conclusion to give us some sense of where we're going as we consider this universal aspect of everything that lives dies. My responsibility is to unpack the last two clauses of the Apostles' Creed. You've been going through the Apostles' Creed now for several weeks, uh, and so now we've come to the very end, the last two clauses of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, it goes like this. I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. That second clause about life everlasting depends on the first clause to happen. If, you're not, if your body is not resurrected, you're not going to have life eternal. And there's the paradox. Because the resurrection is the middle point between my body as it is now, and your body as it is now, and the body that we will have after the resurrection. Today we live in the existential moment, the now, the right now. Then we will live in the eternal, the forever. Now we live in what is, but then we're going to live in what will be. Today we have hope, but after the resurrection we have the fulfillment of our hope. The resurrection stands between the death of all things and the end of all death. Because one of the things that disappears at the resurrection is death, as we just read. It'll be gone forever. These 
disintegrating bodies. Maybe you've got a disintegrating body. When you get to be my age, uh, it becomes very obvious. I'm getting seats on the subway and the buses now because people can see my body's disintegrating. And so, well, could you sit here, please? Uh, I was on the uh, bus the other day, and uh, some guy's pushing, you know, fresh off, shoving his way through, whatever big guy. And, uh, and he shoves Karen, he shoves me. And so I gave him a, you know, I used to play football in college, so I gave him a, you know, one of these. And he shot across the thing, about 300-pound guy. And he turned around and looked at me, and he's about ready to, hey, you old, man, you old. I, you get a pass from that, because you're old. <laughs> so I get a pass, because... But these dis disintegrating bodies, the relationships that we have that are falling apart, uh, the temptation that we have to sin, yielding to our flesh constantly, all those things, none of that, none of that can enter into eternity. And so we have to have different bodies if we're to enter into eternity. I believe fervently in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, and I hope you do as well. Our text this morning is from 1 Corinthians 15. We just read a couple of verses from there. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. This is the great chapter in all of the New Testament about the resurrection of the dead. Uh, Paul goes more into detail about what it means to be resurrected, what the body is going to be like in this particular section than anywhere else in, in his letters. We're going to be drilling down on verses 42 through 44. So... Look at, as I read, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 44. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body. What Paul is giving us here is pairs of contrasting adjectives, ways of describing the body before the resurrection and after the resurrection here. Uh, and so we're going to look at those pairs and try to see what we can discover about what it means for the body to be resurrected and then to live life eternal. There are four pairs here, but I'm going to condense them down to three because two of them are very similar, as we'll see here at the beginning. But the first pair of contrasting adjectives, the body pre-resurrection, the body post-resurrection, is in verse 42 and 43. Look at verse 42 again. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. Then the end of verse 43, it is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. What Paul is doing here is he's contrasting our weak, decaying, mortal bodies that are falling apart with the powerful, eternal, immortal bodies that we will all receive at the resurrection. He wants us to understand that who we are physically, who we are physically must change if we're to enter into eternity. Our mortal bodies, the physical world that we occupy, that we live in, uh, that's decaying, all those things, all of that has to disappear. All of that has to be gone before we enter into eternity because they cannot exist in eternity. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8. Let me read a couple verses from there. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. 
Not only so, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. Notice Paul is saying our bodies, the physical world, the universe that we live in, we're groaning together. We're longing for something that doesn't exist now. Do you ever wonder why things like 9-11 happen? Or why earthquakes happen? Or why floods like just happened in Louisiana? Why that happens? Do you ever wonder why your bodies begin to betray you as you get older? And sometimes you don't have to be very old. We abuse it and it begins to uh, uh, betray us. Do you ever wonder why those things uh, happen? I'll tell you why. Because we live under a curse. You and I, this physical world, we live under a curse. And you know who cursed us? God cursed us. God cursed his own creation because of what we had done to ourselves and to his good creation when he created it. This world, this creation, doesn't exist as God created it. It is polluted by our sin. It's a fallen world. These bodies that you and I occupy are not as God intended them to be. They're cursed and they're falling apart. That's why, as Paul says here in verse 23 of Romans 8, we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. Are you waiting eagerly for the redemption of your bodies when all the effects of the curse and the fall will be gone forever? Are you waiting for that? You know, I read something, I, or I did not read something in, in chapter 8 of Romans that I want to read to you now. It's verse 18. Listen to how Paul contrasts the before and after. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. All the suffering, all the disasters, things like 9-11, whatever you're suffering through, and everybody here has their own story of suffering. All of that isn't worth comparing to the glory that we will have in our resurrected bodies forever and ever. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. The body that is sown is perishable, it's mortal, it's decaying. It is raised immortal, imperishable. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It's interesting that Paul uses a word for power there, uh, the dynamos. And it's the, we get our, obviously, our English word dynamite from that, that explosive power. And so we believe in the resurrection of the body, the physical body, and the life everlasting. That's the first thing Paul wants us to understand. The second pair of adjectives about the pre- and post-resurrection body is in verse 43, back in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your Bibles, look at that. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 43. It is sown in dishonor, and the word could also be translated shame at that point, and I think that's a better translation, frankly. It is sown in shame. It is raised in glory. If who we are physically has to change for us to enter into eternity. Who we are socially, Paul is saying here, in our relationships, in our community, that too has to change if we're to enter into eternity. Let me tell you a secret. Maybe it's not so much of a secret. Not everybody likes you. <laughs> it's 
uh, all the paranoid people say, talk about me, you know. I know that because, you know, I discovered a long time ago, not everybody likes me. Uh, you know, some people choose to remember us for what we used to be than for what we are. You know who's very good at that? Christian brothers and sisters. That is a very sad thing, but it's too often true. There's way too much pride. There's way too much abuse and manipulation and resentments and anger and jealousy that crowd into the relationships Christians have with each other. Let me tell you a story about the man with the worst reputation of the Bible. His name is Manasseh, and he was king of Judah for 55 years. If you want to read his story, it's in 2 Kings 2, 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Um, but he was uh, a king. He started his reign at 12 years old, probably reigned with his father for a period of time. And then uh, that reign lasted for 55 years. He came from a very good family, this man Manasseh. His father was Hezekiah. And if you know your Old Testament, you know Hezekiah is one of the great kings of Judah. Uh, he took a country that had been destroyed by idol worship and polluted by all kinds of rotten things that came into that country from other places, and he cleansed it. He kicked out all the idols, tore them down, threw them out of the city. He cleansed the temple. He restored the worship of the true God. He was a great man. And Manasseh was his son. But you couldn't find someone more polar opposite to Hezekiah than his son, Manasseh. He was an evil, evil, rotten man. One of the worst in the Bible. You know those idols that I just said Hezekiah tore down and destroyed? Manasseh put them back in. He brought them all back. He put a pagan idol in the temple of God that his father had just cleansed. The people who lived around Israel and Judah at that period of time, uh, in their pagan worship, actually rose the act of sex as a form of worship to their pagan gods. And Manasseh brought that back in to Judah. When he wanted to know the future, he turned to astrologers, and he turned to fortune tellers. He was a vile, evil man. He even took his little baby son, and he took his son and he threw him into a burning fire that was a sacrifice to a pagan god. Well, what do you think God thought about Manasseh? It says uh, he provoked the Lord's fierce anger. And boy, that's a, that's a bad place to be, to provoke the fierce anger of God. His, his name, I'm sure, became a curse word among the people there. Um, in fact... Generations later, we read in the prophet Jeremiah this thing about this guy Manasseh. I will make Judah abhorrent to all the kings of the earth, of the earth because, because of what Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did to Jerusalem. And that's all the Bible says about this vile, rotten, wicked man named Manasseh. Except for a few short verses in 2 Chronicles 33. It's amazing how this man's reputation is challenged by these few verses. Now, 
God had judged Manasseh. He was taken into exile. He was thrown into solitary confinement. And here's this king, this guy who had done all this rotten stuff. And he's sitting there in solitary confinement, and he's thinking about all the stuff he had done. What do you think happens? Let me read you what it says from 1 Chronicles 33, verse 12. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord. All that he had done and he had reflected on, as he sat there, he realized before the Lord what he had done. And he repented. This vile, rotten man repented of all that he had done. Now, how would God receive that? How would God receive that? Let me read you the next verse, verse 13. And when he prayed, the Lord was moved and listened to his plea and brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. The Lord heard Manasseh's prayer, this man who had made God so angry, and he heard this man's prayer and he forgave him. He was moved by his prayer of repentance. It's amazing and wonderful, isn't it, brothers and sisters, that we're never so sinful that God can't hear a prayer of repentance. Praise the Lord for that. But you know the proof of repentance and the often forgotten part of repentance is restoration. It's making right what you've done wrong. Putting back those broken relationships, changing the the disciplines of uh, making our body the mess that they were before. Uh, that was the proof of what Manasseh's uh, repentance was. Was it true or just show? So let me read you the verse 15 of First Second Chronicles 33. He got rid, this is what Manasseh did when he came back to, to Judah, he got rid of the foreign gods and removed the images from the temple of the Lord and he threw them out of the city and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. What had he done? He's now trying to restore what he had broken. He wasn't totally successful. His name went down in the annals of Judah as, uh, as garbage, frankly. And yet, God knew his whole story. Aren't you glad that God knows your whole story? And that you're not stuck with the reputation you might have had? Last week, or last year, or ten years from, uh, from now? People, some people, will always remember you only for what you used to be. That's some people in your family will only remember what you used to be. Or friends. But you know, God knows the whole story. It says that our bodies here, our social relationships, are, are sown in shame. Some people only remember the shame of our past. Some people only remember the shame of my past. But there's very good news here, brothers and sisters. Because Christ took your shame and my shame to the cross. And when Christ died on the cross, he covered, he took all my shame and yours, and he took it and buried it there. And you know what he gives you? He gives you his glory. And so you receive, you have no glory of your own, I have no glory of my own, we have only what God gives us. And Jesus, taking our shame, gives us back his glory. God made him, this is 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of the great verses in the Bible. God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. The last pair that Paul gives us here is in verse 44. These pairs of uh, contrasting adjectives between the pre and post uh, resurrection body. Look at verse 44 back in 2 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians 15. It says it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. We've seen that who we are physically must change if we're to enter into eternity. Who we are socially must change if we're to enter into reality, into, uh, into the future, into eternity. Now Paul is saying who we are spiritually must also change for us to enter into eternity. That's, sometimes that startles us. Because we think at least that's one part of my life I got together. But no. Who I am spiritually must change. Now, just to put a little myth aside here, Paul's not saying we all become immaterial spirits floating around like ghosts or something. That's not what he means here. He's talking about what drives our behavior, the flesh or the spirit. That's really what he's talking about here. Let me read you again something from Romans chapter 8. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So let me ask you a question. Do you want what God wants? You want what God wants. Let me ask you another question, maybe a little more to the point. Do you do what God wants? Do you always do what God wants? I don't. Maybe you relate more to the chapter chapter 7 of Romans, than chapter 8. In chapter 7, there's a remarkable passage here where Paul opens up his soul, bears his soul for everyone over these centuries to see. Listen to what he says and see if you don't identify with what he's saying here. This is from Romans 7, from verse 15. I don't understand what I do, Paul says. What I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. For I know that good does not dwell in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Then he says, what a wretched man I am. Now there's some Bible scholars who look at that passage, and they say, well, Paul's talking about his life before he was a Christian. You know, he was a pretty bad guy before. But you know, that's not true. You know how I know that? Because I lived that struggle this morning. And so did you. And I lived that struggle every day of my life. And so do you. And so, obviously, did the Apostle Paul. Coming to Christ does not eliminate or eradicate my sinful nature. It's still here. When I received Christ, I received the power of the Holy Spirit in me. And he prompts me to do the right thing. He empowers me to do the right thing. But I always don't do the right thing. That's why life after coming to Christ is so hard. You see, before you come to Christ, what reigns in your body? The flesh. And what the flesh wants, the flesh gets. Because there's nothing in there to prevent it. Uh, you know, and... Uh, uh, that's normal. But after you come to Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, 
The Holy Spirit is, Spirit is saying, how about the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, gentleness, all those things that we aren't. And the Holy Spirit is saying, this is what you should do. But my flesh is still here saying, no, serve me. And so that struggle is there. That's why it's so hard to be a Christian, brothers and sisters. If you haven't discovered that yet, and you have, because I'm sure you felt it, that struggle goes on between my sinful self. It went on with the Apostle Paul and the prompting of the Holy Spirit and the empowering of the Holy Spirit to do what is right. Do you want that struggle to go on forever and ever and ever? Do you want to take that struggle with your sinful nature into eternity? I don't. Eternity would be miserable if I had to live that struggle every day of every moment of eternity. But that temptation, that flesh, that sinful nature will only die at the resurrection. Today I have a natural body. That sinful nature is still here. But then I will have no sinful nature. It will be gone forever and I will have no impediment to being all that Christ made me to be, created me to be. We've seen here that to enter eternity, who we are physically must change. These decaying bodies, the decaying world around us, this universe that the scientists call that entropy, everything's falling apart and disintegrating. That has to change before I can enter into eternity. In fact, in Revelation it says that we need a new heaven and a new earth because this old one is passing away. Who we are socially has to change. The broken relationships that we leave behind, all the mess we make in our families or whatever, that has to change before we enter into eternity. Who we are spiritually has to change. This battle, this wrestling with my sinful nature has to be done with forever for me to enter into eternity. I'm sure uh, as you've gone through the Apostles' Creed that people have mentioned that this actually was a baptismal formula. When a person came to be baptized throughout the history of the church, uh, often they were asked to recite the Apostles' Creed. Why? Because it was a simple statement of the core things that we believe together. And if there was a Christian from the 4th century in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, and he walked through this door here and he came up here and he recited the Apostles' Creed, it would be the same thing that you've been reciting or learning uh, over these weeks. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? Uh, that's the Apostles' Creed because we have that together. Um, there's an interesting chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. You remember that chapter where uh, the author there was talking about all the, the people that have been martyred for the faith? And, uh, it's the, here, the uh, Hall of Fame of Faith in chapter 11. Then in Hebrews 12:1, he says this, the writer says this, that we're surrounded by all these people. All these witnesses, all the Christians that have come before us, they're around us. Now, whether it's metaphor, metaphor or, or literal, I don't know, but they're watching us. They're witnesses to what we're doing here. They're watching us, and we're saying the same thing that they said all through the centuries of the church. My sister, who's going to be baptized this morning, praise the Lord for that. She's doing something... She's doing something that Christians have done since day one of the church. Reciting, now she won't recite the Apostles' Creed, but she believes the Apostles' Creed, and so do you when you were baptized. You see, we're affirming the same thing Christians have over the centuries for the entire history of the church. And we're affirming the same hope that we have in the life eternal. 
You remember where we, we started uh, from 1 Corinthians 15, read verses uh, 54 and 55? I said that was my conclusion. Well, let me read it again. It's my conclusion. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? You see the triumph of what Paul says there? It should be the triumphant cry of every Christian. And as we witness the baptism here, it's the triumphant cry that we all share as we see in, in, uh, depicted here, the death and resurrection of our Lord and my sister's identification with that. I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Let's, let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you laid these uh, truths on the heart of the Apostle Paul. We see, Father, that he struggled so much with his own uh, physicality, the, the temptations that he dealt with. Father, we deal with even today. Lord, we recognize that uh, these, these dying bodies here might have to be changed for, to go into eternity, Lord. And we thank you that the resurrection, that will happen. Father, we make a mess of the relationships we have. They're broken, and, and, and we hurt people, Father. They hurt us. Lord, all that will be gone after our resurrected bodies are there, and, and those relationships, everything will be as you intended it to be. And Father, who we are spiritually, the struggle we have to obey you, to, to serve you, even though you give us uh, the power to do so through your Holy Spirit. Father, we deny you so often. We, we know that at the resurrection, that will all be gone. And so, Father, we ask that you might bless us as we contemplate the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.